0: 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is God's word for us this evening. 1 Samuel 21. Then David came to Nov to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone with no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the dead, is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Echish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let a spittle run down his beard. Then Echish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And we ask that God would help us to understand and apply to us his word of truth. And so we sing, speak, O Lord. have sung, so we pray, Lord, speak and let us listen and not merely be hearers of the word but doers, putting into practice what you have desired that we would apply from this truth to your glory. Amen. Well, last Sunday evening we were in First Samuel chapter 20 and we were looking at uh, this great drama unfolding as David had confirmed to him through the uh, message delivered by Jonathan that his life was in grave danger. Saul had determined to kill him, and he would not rest until he had achieved his goal. David's only hope of survival, as he surmised, was in fleeing for his life. And uh, as we turn tonight to chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, we'll see that the the first step in that self-salvation process was that David goes to a place called Nov, and then he goes from there to Gath. And I've described these as a place of faith uh, and a place of fear. Uh, to to help us think through this text. So, a place of faith and a place of fear. Uh, And we have to understand that David's journey to the throne, because that was his God-determined destiny, and his journey to the throne took him through many deep valleys. His days were dark and difficult for many years before God's foretold future came to pass. And this passage, it would not be a very suitable text for a a prosperity gospel preacher because things are not at any point good for David here. And yet, what we discover is that God is speaking into real life, indeed into the real Christian life. And he teaches us how on our journey, whatever twists or turns it makes, God proves himself to be Faithful. So let's think first of all, David's journey, his flight to a place of fear. All throughout the story of Samuel and these books of Samuel, the Philistines are a constant threat, an a ever-present danger. And on one of their raids into Israel, they had destroyed Shiloh uh, and the, the place where the tabernacle was uh, situated, where Eli ministered and where Samuel, the boy, grew up. And we're not told when it happened, but obviously the, 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 the priests had relocated. They, they moved to this place called Nova, a few miles north of Jerusalem. And so we read verses 1 to 3 again. Then David came to Nova to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So David comes to Ahimelech. And he comes seeking provision for a great hunger. Provision for a great hunger. We remember what was happening Uh, last week in chapter 20. Saul and his courtiers were enjoying the rich feast of the new moon banquet. And all these animals were slaughtered. All this food was prepared. But David wasn't there. He was hiding. Hiding out in the field, we're told. And uh, they were feasting. He was fleeing. And he's hungry. And man does not live by bread alone, we know. But man needs bread to live. And there is the unanswerable question as we uh, read through these verses. Why did Ahimelech tremble? No one knows. Ahimelech was Eli's grandson. It may have been that he was somehow aware of something that was going on between Saul and David. And that made him a little fearful. Maybe it was that he, he as he met David, obviously David was distressed. This was all very unusual. He was on his own and, uh, and he had nothing with him. And Just the circumstances might have distressed Ahimelech. Maybe it was just the fact he was meeting this superstar, this hero of the people. You ever met a superstar? You get a little bit excited. Maybe your knees will quake a little as you bump into the David Beckhams of this world or whatever. But, but anyway, the, the two men meet, Ahimelech's nervous, he's, his knees are quaking, and as they encounter each other, David tells a story. And I don't know what you made of the story as we read it together, but uh, it's a very flimsy excuse that he gives for the questions that Ahimelech asks of him. Why has he no entourage? Why has he no provisions? Why has he no weapons? Oh, well, there's a bit of a hurry. Saul sent me off. It's very secret and all this sort of thing. The narrator does nothing in his telling of the story to convince us that David is in any way telling the truth. Now, last Sunday, we, we spent a moment or two thinking about this, that Jonathan, with David, decided to deceive his father, Saul, regarding David's whereabouts. And this is a common thing in Scripture. And we understand that as God's word is provided to us, there is no attempt to airbrush the lives of these men. There is no attempt to disguise their wrongdoing. We might suggest that maybe David was misleading Ahimelech for his own protection. Because if Ahimelech had known the truth, he would be caught between David and Saul. And and maybe to spare Ahimelech's life, he tells him this little fairy story. Of course, that proved to be vain as we discover in the next chapter. And it's most likely that David simply strings together this web of lies to save his own skin. To facilitate his own self-salvation plan. So David asks for bread. But Elimelech doesn't have any ordinary bread. What he does have to hand is the bread of the presence. The ceremonial bread that that sat on the uh, golden table in the heart of the tabernacle before God's presence. You can read about it. Exodus 25, verses 23 to 30. Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. And God's word is very clear on what should happen to this bread. It was only to be eaten by priests and only in a holy place. So verse 9 of Leviticus 24 says, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual Jew. A knew the law and ahimelech saw the need and furthermore he understood the heart behind the law he understood that mercy always triumphs over judgment james two thirteen. he understood that legalism must not trump compassion and the need to be right must not be greater than the call to be gracious And as you read this story, you might even say to yourself, well, does not David's deceit not disqualify him from being allowed to eat this bread? Surely his falsehoods, his lie-telling disqualify him. He doesn't deserve this provision for his hunger. And when you reach that conclusion, you arrive at the very heart of the gospel. For when has one of us ever deserved the gifts of God? When has anyone lived so well that God has no choice but to bless our lives? Grace, by its definition, is necessarily undeserved favor. And the testimony of every believer must be this. I'm not good, but my God is gracious. And out of a heart of love, he gives to me what I can never deserve. David receives the bread. And this message and the correctness of the interpretation of the law and its application is confirmed in the New Testament. You find it in Luke 6, verses 1 to 4, also Matthew 12, 1 to 8, Mark 2, 25. Let me read Luke 6 for you. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. No one knew the law better than the Pharisees. No one that is apart from Jesus, the great high priest. He knew the letter of the law and he knew the spirit of the law. And he makes it very clear that every interpretation and application of the law must be for the benefit and blessing of men and women, never as a burden to belittle them. Even the rules must be broken if it's clear that it brings blessing to God's people. It may be written in black and white, but Jesus says there is a greater law written not in black and white, but written in red in my blood. And it is my purpose that the greatest needs of my people might be met. It is my heart's desire for First Port Portadown Congregation that we would be a gospel-centered church. And being a gospel-centered church necessitates that one of our key values must be grace-motivated generosity. Grace-motivated generosity. A generosity that means that others will take advantage of us and get from us what they do not deserve. But we will still give it anyway. A spirit of grace that means that others may criticize and condemn us for the excess in our giving or are the recipients of our goodness. But we will share anyway. Without spoiling the story, Elimelech's kindness and generosity to David will cost him his life. And we have to understand that there is always a high price to pay. There's always a cross to be carried when you desire to live a gospel centered life, when you want to display grace motivated generosity to others and to all. When you do so, you show your likeness to Christ. And Christ was crucified by a world for his love to it. David receives the bread, he finds his hunger met. Then there's this little dark chill that, that sweeps across the scene in, in verse 7. We're introduced just in a little moment to a man called Doeg the Edomite. And what are we to make of this man? I don't want to linger on his role as yet. But it's likely as that little phrase says, he was detained before the Lord. What was he doing Enough. He was worshipping. He may have been an Edomite, but he had this affiliation to the God of Israel, and he had come to worship. And next chapter, he's back in Nova again. This time, he's creating carnage, slaughtering priests. And in Doeg, we see something of the vagaries of the human heart. One minute engaged in worship, the next moment engaged in wickedness. Unmasked a little bit of our own hearts and reminds us that our confidence should never rest upon people, but only upon the Lord. Nov is a a place of of fear, of, of faith, but there's also a place of fear, and we discover that that's where David goes next in verse 10. And David rose that day and fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. David had gone to Noth to seek provision for his great hunger. He goes to Gath to seek protection from a great enemy. And his desire to escape the jealous rage of Saul takes him to this place of fear. It's not easy to get your head around what's happening here. Just think about it. Goliath's killer is in Goliath's hometown armed with Goliath's sword. Without doubt, David is a desperate man. That David would feel safer in Gath than in Gibeah shows us something of the madness and the rage of Saul. He arrives in the city, and there's a bit of recognition of who he is. Apologies, some of you don't watch football, but some of us do, and... uh, Football teams like to have their little special songs written for their particular heroes. They write a little lyric for somebody who stands out in their team, and most of those we can't share in church. But let me share one. Once upon a time, Liverpool supporters used to sing. He's big, he's red, his feet stick out of bed. He's Peter Crouch, he's Peter Crouch. And here we discover that the Philistine knew the songs the Israelite fans sang of their superstar. David, verse 11, And the servants of Echish said to him, Is not this David, and the one they call the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. There could be no hiding his identity. Can you imagine that as David was maybe walking down the street, people were passing him and realizing that this was the man, he was the one who had the blood of their family members, their loved ones, on his hands. He had been responsible for their deaths. So to survive, David resorts to the tactic used by Joseph Heller's anti-hero, Captain John Yossarian and. Catch twenty-two, or Ken Casey's uh, Randall McMurphy, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He feigns madness, and I imagine it wasn't really difficult for him to do that. In these days, he must have felt that he was losing his mind. Already, he had had to flee the land of his home, the land that God had spoken to him and said He would rule over. But now he's in Philistine hiding. He had to leave his family. He to leave his wife. He's in Gath. It's crazy and it would not be much to pretend to be losing your mind in such circumstances. Like a locked up dog, he scratches the door. His slabbers run down his beard. All this causing Achish to despair. And he says in verse 15, Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Somehow, this dehumanizing tactic was enough to spare David's life from the hand of the Philistines. And we've got to ask ourselves, was, was David wise enough? Was he skillful enough as an undercover agent to survive and stay alive behind enemy lines? Well, hopefully you understand that David was utterly helpless. His tactics were practically useless. Living in the midst of his arch enemies, David could only survive for one reason. That was because the hand of God was upon him. It was not his disguise, it was not his deception, it was the Lord at his side. So in an effort to save himself, David went to Nov, a place of faith in search of provision for his great hunger. He went to Gath, a place of fear in search of protection from a great enemy. And what we don't have in our chapter, but what is vital for our understanding is that in those circumstances, God brought him to a place of fruitfulness. Can you bear testimony? That as nothing else in our lives. It is trial and trouble that turns our hearts in desperation to God. We find ourselves at the very extremity of human resources, and so, as never before, we cling to God for help, for hope. And we are blessed and given special insight and understanding to know what is going on in David's heart in these moments of which we read in chapter 21, because in this period he writes two Psalms, one of which I've referenced, Psalm 34, but also Psalm 56. And when I go to visit people and spend time with them, and they're going through tough days, Psalm 34 is is just a a blessing in pastoral work. Because we understand that that David has gone through the worst of times. If Goliath's conqueror is in Gath, if he's feigning madness, this is not a good set of circumstances. And so we wonder, what's David going to say in these moments? David, we know, needed two things. He needed provision for his great hunger. And if you can, turn to to Psalm 34. And what does he write? Verses 8 to 10, Psalm 34, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And David needed protection from a a great enemy, and so we read verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verses 6 and 7. This poor man cried. To the Lord. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David, in all his attempts at self-preservation in his effort to flee from the rage of Saul. He arrives at a place and discovers that it's not about who you run away from, but who you run to that really matters. We must flee to God and, and not from man. And we will shortly sing those beautiful words of Charles Wesley's great hymn. And David could have said this, he said, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave and leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing provision for a great hunger, protection from a great enemy. But best of all, in this, David discovers the promise of a great salvation. Surely, in the middle of all of this, when David was at his lowest point, This God who had spoken to him, who uh, he hadn't gone looking for him, but but God through Samuel had brought him from the shepherd's field and had anointed him with the oil that marked him to be the next king of Israel. He found himself in the court of the king. He found himself in the heart of the battle. And now he's fleeing in fear. Surely as he quaked before the threat of Achish and the Philistines, could he not say, cry out to God, do you not care? Do you not care that I have found myself in this place at this time? And somehow in the middle of all that David had to endure, he discovered an unshakable confidence in the goodness of God and the guarantee of his deliverance. And so, in Psalm 56, the second of the Psalms written at this time, he he expresses his delight in the tender care of God to his child. Verse 8, that beautiful little verse. He said, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk. Before God in the light of life. And David declares verse 9. This I know. That God is for me. This I know that God is for me. And when we think of that little phrase. God is for me. Our minds must surely go to the the greatest portion of the New Testament. Romans 8. For Paul asks, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for you. He did not spare his own son. But he gave him up for you for all. He gave Jesus the bread of life. The true bread of the presence. To feed the hunger of your heart. He and he alone is the one who can satisfy you. He gave Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. As the only one who can defeat your greatest enemy. The enemy of death. There's a little verse in Psalm 34 that speaks of the crucifixion telling us that none of his bones will be broken. And we understand that there is no condemnation for those who flee to Jesus, for those who find refuge in him, for those who know the truth of his promise of this great salvation, so freely given, so costly bought, but available to all through Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that many times in life we, in fear, run from things. Sometimes it's a challenge that's too big for us and we try to find an easy way. Sometimes it's a relationship that's broken and we just want to avoid the person because we don't want to engage in the lengthy and difficult process of reconciliation. Sometimes it's you we run from because we fear your love for us and what it might demand of us, that you who give us your all will then require of us our all for you. Lord, we run in fear, but we ask that you might turn us to you, that we would run to you in fear, knowing that in you there is satisfaction to our greatest needs and emptiness, there is triumph over our greatest enemy, and there is this guaranteed deliverance that cannot be snatched from our hands. Lord, other refuge have I not, but may I find in you my all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.